You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. Well, it's always good, I find, if you want to speak with authority to go up somewhere higher. And it's very nice that at Bolney Chapel, we're all on, this, we're all on one level. So the preacher is on the same level as everybody else. It's, it's quite nice to be a few... A few inches above contradiction, at least. But um, I uh, read theology at Durham University, and in Durham Cathedral, we may know uh, Durham is the land of the, the land of the Prince Bishops, because uh, the Bishop of Durham was tasked not with uh, simply propagating the gospel, but was also tasked with keeping the Scots at bay. Uh, so there were Prince Bishops, and uh, the Bishop of Durham had political and military authority as well as spiritual authority. And when Durham Cathedral was built. Uh, the bishop wanted to emphasise how much authority he had. So he dispatched a minion to Rome to measure how tall or how high the Pope's throne was at St. Peter's. So the minion went off to Rome with his tape measure and uh, measured how high the Pope's throne was. And he came back to Durham and the Bishop of Durham made sure that his throne was an inch taller. Uh, because he wanted just to emphasise how much authority he had over the people of, uh, of the good county of Durham, and particularly the Scots. I hope there are no Scots in this morning, but uh, there we go. So, um, but in Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus wants to speak with authority, Jesus goes up a mountain. And in Matthew's Gospel, because Matthew is a Jew and is writing a Gospel for the Jews, and so he's always referencing the Old Testament, he's always wanting to explain to people how Jesus fits into uh, the Old Testament, and it's the fulfilment of the Old Testament. And of course, a good Jewish audience know that when God wants to speak with authority, he goes up a mountain. Principally, when Moses goes up a mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, he goes up to the top of Mount Sinai, and that's where God speaks to him from, and that's where the Ten Commandments are delivered from, and the Ten Commandments and the law are the heart of the Old Testament covenant. So for Matthew, when he wants people to know that his Recording something that has divine authority, Jesus goes up a mountain. Uh, So, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus goes up a mountain, gathers people to him to teach them. Chapter 5. When he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And Jesus speaks with divine authority from the top of the mountain. After Simon Peter has been the first to realise who this Jesus is, that he's not just a miracle worker, he's not just a teacher... He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. Uh, After that occasion, beginning of Matthew chapter 17, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James and John, the brother of James, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And it's there that they see Jesus transfigured. It's there that they see Jesus in all his glory. They see him as he truly is. And so here we are at the end of Matthew's gospel. Once again, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. So in these words of Jesus that we have read this morning, that we're going to reflect on now, we're reading words that are given with divine authority. Divine authority. This is the voice of heaven, giving us as church instructions about the way that we should go, giving us instructions about the way that we should be. These are words of divine authority. Uh, Just to remember... Uh, Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7 and this beautiful picture of the authority that we see fulfilled in Jesus. Daniel writes, Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 forward, 
In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's our Jesus, that's the Jesus who's speaking these words. So as we listen, as we reflect, let's be reminded that these words carry divine authority. They're not words that we can read and just think, oh, that's nice, and then turn away from them. They're words that we need to take on board and respond to. Verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped him. When the disciples saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted Curious, isn't it? They, they're there. They recognise who he is. They worship him because they realise, recognise he is the son of God. But some doubted. The Greek, actually, um, a better translation is uh, some hesitated. Some hesitated, which I think uh, gives us a much better understanding of, of what's going on. Because I, I don't know what your journey with the Lord has been like. But I've been a Christian for 36 years. And I've known for 36 years that Jesus is the son of God that I've I worship him as my Lord and my Saviour. But there have been many occasions when the Lord has shown me things or asked me to do things and I've hesitated. Because so often Jesus is asking us to step out of our comfort zone, to go into unknown territory. Just imagine, uh, try and put yourself in the shoes, well the sandals, of uh, the disciples for whom uh, you know, their whole world has been turned upside down in the last Six weeks, you know, right up until Good Friday, they knew exactly how things were going to pan out. They knew that Jesus was going to ride into Jerusalem, he was going to raise an army, he was going to kick the Romans out, he was going to re-establish Israel as an independent nation, and the disciples were going to be his first cabinet. And on a Good Friday, it all goes pear-shaped, it all goes terribly wrong, and all their hopes and dreams are utterly shattered and crushed, and everything comes crumbling down. And they have a day or so of utter despair and utter disillusionment and utter not knowing what on earth is going on and then Easter Sunday happens and suddenly Jesus is alive but he's not just alive he's resurrected they're in a locked room and he suddenly appears but he's flesh and blood and their minds are absolutely spinning and then they spend 40 days 50 days meeting with him him teaching them about the kingdom of God and now suddenly everything is about to change again no wonder no wonder they hesitate I think they can be forgiven for hesitating, wondering what on earth, what on earth is going to happen now? When was the last time in your Christian life that you thought, what on earth is happening now? What on earth is happening now? When was the last time in our Christian lives that we were so surprised by what God God does in our lives that we wondered, what on earth is going to happen now? And actually we hesitated because we weren't sure. Some they worshipped, some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. I want you to imagine a bookshelf, a flat bookshelf. And on the bookshelf are four books standing upright. And the thing with books standing upright by themselves on a flat bookshelf is uh, generally they don't stand upright. They fall over. And if you want the books to stand upright on a flat bookshelf... What do you need? You need bookends. You need a bookend on each end that will hold the books in place. Now, in these verses, the way I want to explain them is like 
uh, two bookends and four books. And often what we do is we focus on the books and we don't give as much attention to the bookends. But without the bookends, what happens to the books? They fall over. So uh, that's how I want you to imagine what we're going to look at this morning. And we're going to start with a bookend and finish with a bookend. And then I'm going to talk about the four books in the middle. Are you still with me so far? So just if you remember nothing else from this morning, remember that image. And then hopefully that will help you to remember what I'm about to explain. The first bookend to keep these books upright and in place on the shelf is the fact that Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This Jesus speaks with the authority of heaven. So when he asks us to do things and we lose confidence in doing them or the world says, well, you shouldn't be doing them. And we think, oh, yeah, maybe you're right. We need to remember that God has given us divine authority to carry out the commission that he's given to us. So when we think about these things, who are we going to listen to? Are we going to listen to the divine authority of God or are we going to listen to the world? Are we going to listen to the voices around us? Are we going to listen to the discouragement of the world around us? Or are we going to remember that God has given us divine authority to fulfil this commission? And actually that's the only voice that we must listen to and the only voice that we need to, to obey. Uh, I'm just, um, I do some work with Release International that support persecuted Christians uh, overseas and I use their uh, their prayer diary, and uh, I've just been praying in the last couple of days for churches in uh, Laos, and I've been praying for Christians who, uh, they were arrested and thrown into prison for celebrating Christmas without permission, because in Laos you have to have permission from the authorities to celebrate Christmas, and presumably if you ask for permission they don't give it, so they just celebrate Christmas anyway. So they celebrated Christmas because they want to celebrate the birth of a saviour, knowing that they'll be arrested and imprisoned and fined. And that's exactly what happened. They were arrested and thrown into prison and fined for celebrating Christmas. And I'm sure in eight months' time, they'll do the same thing again. And the same thing will happen because they know that they live lives under divine authority. And that's the voice that they listen to. So first bookend is Jesus gives us divine authority to do what he asks us to do. So four books on the shelf. The first book on the shelf is called go. That's what Jesus asks us to do. He says go. And generally what do we do? We stay. (laughs) Jesus says go and we stay and we wait. And we hope that Jesus will do the going for us and just bring people in. You know, we're very good at kind of meeting together and we pray together and we pray for the lost uh, to come in. Uh, But we hope that Jesus is going to go and get them for us. But Jesus said the only time that Jesus tells, or I think the only time that Jesus tells his disciples to wait is before the day of Pentecost. When they know everything, well not everything, but they know as much as they need to know. They know who he is. They know that he's the saviour. They know that he died. They know that he rose again. They know that he's defeated death. They know that he's the son of God. They have, they have enough knowledge to get going on this great commission. But what they don't have is the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Jesus asked them to wait for. He says, wait until you're filled with power. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit that propels them out and propels them out into the world. It's the Holy Spirit that propels them into their going. But what do we do? We've we've kind of, as church often, we've settled and we wait and we don't go. We wait for people to come to us. I was talking at the men's breakfast uh, 
couple of weeks ago about the story of Zacchaeus. And one of the things I love about the story of Zacchaeus is that Jesus says to Zacchaeus, I must come to your house today. He doesn't say to Zacchaeus, come to my house. Uh, Partly, possibly, because he didn't have one. But I think even if Jesus did have a house, he wouldn't have said to Zacchaeus, come to my house. Because Jesus deliberately wants to go to the place where Zacchaeus feels at home, where he's comfortable, where he knows how things work. And then in that world, show him something different. And that's what happens to Zacchaeus. Jesus comes to his home, his place, and in that place, overwhelms Zacchaeus with his love and holiness. And Zacchaeus looks on the holiness of Jesus and says, I don't want to be like I am anymore. But as church, so often we have settled. I told a story, if you're listening on the radio last Sunday, a story that I stole from somebody else the week before, which is where most of my stories come from. I steal them from other people. But it's this lovely story of uh, America in the mid-19th century and of American settlers setting out across America in the the years of the Wild West, which is a very short period of time. Uh, And they'd set out from uh, Independence in Missouri, and it's a 700-mile trek to Santa Fe and they want to get to Santa Fe that's that's where they want to go that's where they want to settle but it's a 700 mile journey and it's fraught with danger and because you're going in horses with a horse and wagons the furthest you can get in any one day is about 20 miles so it's a long journey and it's it's just fraught with danger and uncertainty 20 miles out from Independence Missouri uh, there's a farm and uh, people start to settle on the farm as they're Stopping place. It's 20 miles out uh, from uh, Independence. It's called Blue Camp 20 because it's named after the River Blue and it's a camp and it's 20 miles out from Independence. They didn't put a lot of thought into naming these places. It's Blue Camp 20 and that's the first stop and it's kind of it's the, it's the last place before you leave civilization and you embark on this 700 mile journey into the wilderness. And it's supposed to be a staging post, it's supposed to be a place where you stop and rest and reprovision. And then you set off on your great adventure. But what happens is people turn up at Blue Camp 20 and they stop for the night and they think, oh, it's quite nice here, isn't it? There's a, you know, there's a river and there's a farm, there's a guy growing crops and maybe we'll stop another night. And they stop another night and you can see where, and eventually people say, well, well, actually, why do we want to, you know, why do we want to risk life and limb getting to Santa Fe? It's quite nice here at Blue Camp 20. Let's just stay where we are. And that's what they do. So they start, the tents are replaced with buildings and people set up businesses. And after a while, they decide to rename the place. They say, well, let's not call it Blue Camp 20 anymore because we're a bit settled. Let's rename ourselves Little Santa Fe. Where they wanted to get to was Santa Fe, 700 miles away. But they've given up on that dream and they decided to settle for something less. But they want a kind of echo of where they were intending to get to, so they call it Little Santa Santa Fe. And they never get where they're going. And so often in church, that's what we do. We read this Great Commission, but actually we've settled for a little Great Commission. We've settled for a smaller version of what it is that God is calling us to be, and a smaller vision of what he's calling us to be. And instead of going, uh, we stay and we wait. And I think one of the things that we need to rediscover is is a different way of being church, that we've become too settled. We've settled for our little Santa Fe. I was reading an article the other day about um, a a guy called Ant Delaney who leads a number of churches in Manchester and he was writing about how he has a sense that we're in the days almost of a 
a second reformation, by which he means not, a, a, he says, you know, the first reformation was about a rediscovery of the way of salvation. And he, the way he sees things now is that we're in a second reformation, which is a rediscovery of a way of being church. A way of being church, a church that is not settled, but a church that is always going and that is always on the move. How can you tell if you're a church that has started to settle rather than a church that is going on the move? Well, one of the signs by which you know that you've settled is if you read um, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, where Paul writes about the gifts that God has given to the church and where Paul writes about the fact that it was uh, Jesus who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Because if you are a settled church, you probably just have pastors and teachers. Because if you're a settled community, that's all you need to have. It's one of the things that we're really um, wrestling with and thinking about afresh at, at Bolney at the moment is, is when we look at the way we are church, we, we, have, we have pastor, well, we have pastor, it's only one. We have pastor and teacher. And we've lost sight of the fact that actually in the church we need to have apostles and prophets and evangelists. A church that is moving and going needs apostles and prophets and evangelists. But a church that is settled only needs pastors and teachers. It's interesting, my background's in the Church of England. And it's literally in the last... Uh, when I was, went to a selection conference for ministry, the whole emphasis on selection of Ministers for the Church of England was on the basis of a pastoral and teaching model. That was all they were looking for until literally the last 10 years. And only in the last 10 years has the selection criteria uh, specified experience of mission. Uh, you know, we kind of get there in the end. But, uh, but actually a church that's on the move needs a... What's the, what's the apostle do? The apostle is... Uh, these characters are always irritating, which is why we dispense of them and just stick with pastors and teachers. Because the apostle is the one who's always two steps ahead of everyone else. The apostle is always pushing on. The apostle is always saying, why don't we do this? We should be doing that. And the settled congregation say, oh, well, we, did, we tried that. We tried that 10 years ago and it didn't work. <laughs> I don't know what people are. But the apostle is the one who's always straining at the leash and saying, Let, we should be doing this. Let's do this. Uh, the prophet, that's the voice of God. You know, where's the voice of God in our churches uh, annoying us and irritating us and challenging us to do things that we're not doing? Uh, and the evangelist is, you know, we're all called to be witnesses, but the evangelist is the one who, who has that, that passion and that heart and that gift of connecting with the lost. That's the first book on, on the... How long have I got? <laughs> At what point will lunch start to burn? <laughs> so, uh, anyway, that's the first book on the shelf. Go. We need, I'm so challenged about this. I said at the men's breakfast, you know, I've joined the, the Bolney Players, which is our amateur dramatic society, which is very amateur and very dramatic. But it's just a way of, of me going, because particularly as a pastor, it's so easy as a pastor just to spend all your time with, you know, with Christians, because that's where so much of our energy is invested in. And I'm like, you know, I love Christians, but actually I love the lost and I want to be living my life. So I've joined the Bolney Players and I've I'm started volunteering in the village cafe so there are all sorts of things that could go wrong. But I want to kind of embed myself, kind of embed myself in communities of people who aren't Christians. And it's vital that we do that because if we don't do that, then we can't do the second book on the shelf. And the second book on the shelf is 
make disciples. Is that we make disciples. And we need to reimagine and rethink what we mean by making disciples. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with um, courses like uh, Christianity Explored and Life Explored and uh, Disciples Explored. Interesting how they are named. So we've just done Life. Have you done Life Explored? Like his, those first videos are well weird, aren't they? The first, vi- the first thing that we were like watching those videos thinking, what? Anyway, this kind of life explorer is just being we think, well, there might be a God out there somewhere and I want to discover more about him. And then when you've done that, then you do Christianity Explored and you discover Jesus. And then once you've discovered Jesus, then you do Discipleship Explored. And we think about discipleship in terms of what happens once we've discovered Jesus. <clears throat> I don't think Jesus thought about discipleship like that. Jesus thought about discipleship as, come and hang out with me and find what makes me tick. And if what makes me tick appeals to you and you're drawn to it, then let it start making you tick. And then let's keep on journeying together. So we need to be living our lives amongst people who don't know Jesus so that they observe our lives. And we're discipling them Day by day, Peter writes in 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give an answer to those who ask you to give a reason for the hope that you have. When was the last time someone asked us the reason for the hope that we have? Well, if we're not living our lives amongst those who, are, uh, who don't yet know Jesus, no one will ever ask us the question. And hopefully if we are, then from time to time, people will notice something different about us. I was, had an appointment at the, at the bank a month or a couple of months ago. And um, I was there with the, with the advisor. He was new to the job. And honestly, he was 12 years old. <laughs> he, was, he was 12 years old. He had a suit that was slightly too big for him. He was, and because he was so young, he had the manager of the bank in with him. And at some point, he had to go out to photocopy my driving license or something. And uh, the manager, this lovely lady, she said, she, she, looked, she said, I can tell you, you're really peaceful. You just seem to be a really peaceful person. And I just thought, wow, you should see me at home with the kids. And, uh, but then I said, I said, well, that's because, that's because I believe in, you know, I'm a Christian and I believe in a God who's bigger than I am and a God who's bigger than my circumstances. And, uh, you know, I know that that God is, is with me. And uh, she noticed, you know, she noticed something about my life that hopefully has something to do with the presence of Jesus in me. But that's what discipleship is all about. At the, the chapel at the moment, we have these two lovely ladies, uh, Jean and Tony. And they started coming about three years ago. And they started coming not because they were really interested in Christianity, but because they, they liked, they came to a tea party. And they liked the tea party. And someone said, well, we should come on a Sunday. So they came on the Sunday. And they just love hanging out in the church. And they love being part of the community. And Jean is, she's almost, almost there. She's, she's praying and she's, God is answering her prayers and she's, her eyesight was deteriorating and we prayed and her eyesight is, consultant was surprised at how good her eyesight has become. So she's seeing God at work and I was, her friend Tony doesn't believe in God. It's so funny, she comes and, uh, you know, people ask her why she's, oh, I don't believe in God. You know, I don't, but she's invited her friend Edith to come, who also doesn't believe in God, because she likes coming. And, uh, and Jean has invited her friend Joy to come, who also doesn't believe in God. But they like coming, and they like hanging out with us, and they're being discipled as they go. I'm always challenged by the fact that Jesus is surrounded by a crowd of people who don't know who he is. And as a pastor, that's the challenge in the back of my mind, is 
as a, as a leader is, why isn't our church surrounded by a crowd? The church should be a, surrounded by a crowd of people who are fascinated by what they hear and see. And I'm really encouraged by, you know, Jean and Tony and just one or two others who are starting to come because they like what they hear and they like what they see. If the ministry of the church looks like the ministry of Jesus, we should have that crowd. That's what discipleship is, is all about. And I think we've lost something in the way that we think about discipleship. We think it's, well, let's get them in first, uh, get them converted, and then teach them how to live good Christian lives. But it's actually it's about living lives that are constantly impacted by the presence of Jesus, that look different so that people live alongside us and see that we lo- live life differently. Uh, that's the second book on the shelf. Third book on the shelf, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we, baptism has become very domesticated uh, in our culture. It's a, very, uh, you know, it's a very comfortable thing to do. It's not an outrageous thing to do. You know, at the time that Matthew is writing his gospel, you know, being baptised is putting your life on the line. Because what do you do when you're baptised? You declare that Jesus is Lord. Only he isn't Lord because Caesar is Lord and Caesar doesn't take kindly to other people being declared as Lord. So if as a Roman citizen or wherever you stand up and say Jesus is Lord, uh, you're putting your life at risk. Uh, when I've uh, been to Pakistan, uh, we baptise uh, Muslim converts in secret because if we did it in public, their lives would be at risk. Their lives are at risk anyway because they've made that public declaration uh, being baptised is not about installing an app. It's installing a new operating system. Uh, so often we treat Christianity as if it's adding something nice to the way we're already living our lives. It's not adding something nice to the way we're already living our lives. It's about installing a completely new operating system that puts our lives at risk. It means we live lives in such a way that our culture will despise us for the things that we hold dear. Our culture will ridicule us and despise us for our stand on abortion and our stand on same-sex marriage because our culture opposes the gospel. That's why the church is despised. That's why Christians are persecuted because the gospel always clashes with the culture. And being baptised is about Uh, stepping into the unknown. It's about taking risk. It's about being prepared to be abused. But it's being baptised in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Let me just say one thing about uh, the Trinity. Uh, It was Trinity Sunday last Sunday and we were celebrating the Trinity and uh, it's one of those things that we celebrate and then we think, I still don't understand it. And uh, that thing is it, 2,000 years of theologians, we still don't understand the Trinity. One of the most important things that we do understand about the Trinity is that only a Trinitarian God can have love as the essence of who he is. Only a Trinitarian God can have love as the essence of who he is. Because only a Trinitarian God could love and know what love was all about before he created anything. A God who is just one cannot know anything about love until... He's created something. And then once he's created something, he can decide whether or not he's going to love it. That's the issue with Islam. And when you go to a place like Pakistan, you see the absence of love in Islam. There are many Muslims who are full of love. 
and I've been to Pakistan and met Muslims who are, who are loving and kind and generous. But I would say the reason that they're loving and kind and generous is because they are reflecting the image of God in which they were created. There's an absence of love in Islam. Why? Because Allah can choose to love if he wants, but he can choose not to love. That's the uncertainty of, of Islam. Allah can choose to do all of these things, but he can choose not to. That's why there's so much uncertainty. So Allah can choose to be merciful, but he might not. So you can live your life as a faithful Muslim. You can you know, do the five pillars. You can do the hard. You can do the, you can do the whole lot. But in the end, Allah might say, I choose not to be merciful. And it could all have been for nothing. But we're baptised in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. A God who is a God of love. Every approach that he makes towards us is motivated by love. And as Christians and as a church community, that should characterise everything that we are about and everything that we do. Yes, within that there's challenge, there's discipline, there's rebuke. Because if you love, you care. And if you care, then you make judgments. But it's from that place of love. That's the third book on the shelf. Go, disciple, uh, baptise. Fourth book on the shelf. Teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Not just the bits that they like, but everything that I have commanded you. Let me just read a... There's, um, there's so much we could reflect on. Let me just read a little snapshot of what I think this looks like and we see it in the, the sending out of the disciples in Luke chapter 9 where Jesus says this Jesus called the 12 together he gave them power and authority to drive out demons and to cure diseases and he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick and I think that that kind of encapsulates everything that Jesus uh, taught them to do everything that he commanded them to do Obviously, yes, there's everything that Jesus taught, everything that we have in the Gospels, everything that he asked them to do. But I think it's summed up in that little phrase, power and authority to drive out demons and cure diseases, to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Because that's the ministry of Jesus. Isn't that what Jesus does? He arrives, he starts teaching people about the kingdom of God, and at the same time, he shows them what it looks like. He holds the two things together. I passionately believe in church we've... We've lost that, and it's one of the reasons that we've become settled. We've become settled because we, uh, we, uh, we, uh, we proclaim, but we often don't demonstrate. And when you proclaim without demonstration, often people don't listen to what you have to say, and they don't listen to your proclamation. And then you start to shrink and then you start to settle. It's the, it's the demonstration of the gospel that provokes people to ask questions and provokes people to listen. And wins you an audience for people who want to hear what you have to say. And Jesus does both of those things together. He doesn't do one, he does them both together. He tells people about the kingdom of God. He shows them what it looks like. He tells people about God's kingdom breaking into the world. And as he does that, he heals the sick and he casts out demons and he offers forgiveness and he welcomes the prostitutes and the lepers and the tax collectors. And he says, you're welcome because God's heart is a massive heart of welcome. And so often it's when people's lives are impacted by the kingdom of God that they ask questions about the king. You read the book of Acts, time after time, that's what happens. The king, someone's healed and they say, well, well how was I healed? 
And the disciples say, well, it wasn't us, it was Jesus. Do you want to meet him because he's still alive? A church that holds those two things together is both proclaiming and demonstrating will be a church that draws a crowd because people will be fascinated by what they hear and see. Are we teaching everything that Jesus commanded us to teach? Are we holding those two things together? Both, both are vital. You can't do one without the other. And uh, sometimes as church, we, we, you know, we walk a tightrope and we veer off. And sometimes we're, we're, we're too focused on, if you can ever be too focused on proclamation, do you hear what I'm saying? We're, we're so focused on proclamation that we lose sight of demonstration. But I've seen it the other way. When there's so much focus on, on uh, demonstration and on miracles and on seeking the spirit, that actually we lose sight of the proclamation, that actually we're calling people to salvation. But the gospel... Is the restoration of God's creation. That's what it's all about. The gospel in its entirety is not simply plucking lost souls from earth so that they can be sent to heaven. It's about the restoration of God's creation. It's the Revelation 21 speaks about a new heaven and a new earth. It's about uh, not turning the clock back, but it's about going back to the Garden of Eden where uh, Adam and Eve lived in glorious community with God, where the things of heaven and the things of earth were in complete overlap. That's what we're looking forward to when Jesus returns, the complete overlap of the things of earth and the things of heaven. And what we live at the moment is a partial overlap of the things of heaven and the things of earth. And every time there's a, a miraculous healing, every time there's a miraculous deliverance, every time someone is, receives forgiveness, it's a signpost pointing us towards what we are looking forward to. Why is marriage between... Sorry, I just jumped on a hobby horse. Not quite sure how that happened. But why is marriage between one man and one woman so important? Why are we so passionate about that? Because marriage between one man and one woman is a huge signpost that points us towards the restoration and the recreation of everything that's been lost. That's why Jesus says that in heaven there will be no marriage. In heaven there will be no marriage. Those of us that are married... Read that and we think, oh, but I want there to be marriage in heaven because it's such a lovely thing. But why do we not need marriage in heaven? Because when you arrive in a place, you don't need a signpost that's pointing you there anymore. Marriage is a signpost that points us towards the fulfilment of God's kingdom because it's about a husband and a bride. And God is the husband and the church is the bride. And every time someone is married, it reminds us that's God's plan for the world. That's what we're looking forward to is the wedding feast. And one day... We will be there. Back off hobby horse. So those four books on the shelf. Go. Make disciples. Baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. The second bookend is this. I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is not a God who sets us off and waves us goodbye. This is a God who sets us off and comes with us. That's why he tells, Jesus tells the disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they receive power from on high. Because he doesn't want them to go off on their own. He wants to come with them. But now he's coming with them by the power of the Spirit, not in physical form as he had done before. This is a God who is with us. I think that when we lose sight of the authority that we've been given and the presence of Christ that we carry within us, when we lose sight of those two things, the books start to wobble on the shelf and fall over. And we lose our confidence in going. 
And we lose our distinctiveness in discipling those around us who do not yet know Jesus. And we lose sight of the calling of those who are baptised to take risks and to embark on a great adventure. And we lose our confidence in teaching other people what Jesus taught because we've lost our own confidence in it. It's when we remember the authority that we've been given and we remember that God is with us in every moment of every day that the books stand upright on the shelf and that we get on and do them. So I want to encourage you, encourage you this morning to to reimagine, to revisit the great commission that God has given to us and to know that this is a commission given to us with divine authority. And know that it's given to us by a God who promises to be with us every step of the way. Let's be more imaginative. Let's be bolder in our going and in our making disciples of those around us. Live lives that are distinctive. So that then when you're lovely, I'm very, I shouldn't be jealous, but I'm very jealous of your new baptistry that's not quite here yet. Because when Bolney Chapel was built, we didn't put one in. And uh, so we have to hoik people into a big tank. So... uh, But what an amazing uh, vision and step of faith to build a baptistry. Because God will bring people to be baptised as we are faithful in obeying the Great Commission.